Hello, this is Senator Katie Freihester, Senate Chair of the Joint Committee on Cybersecurity, IT, and Biotechnology. You're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, your best source for Maryland's politics and policy. Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, just back from conference as we uh, record here the week after. How are you? You're recovering from conference. It's a lot of walking around, a lot of talking to people. How are things with you? Uh, It's a nice little flow of energy to see so many of our members and so many of the county professionals and folks who deal closely with counties. So that's, it's a good process to go through and to have, you know, people come in and receive awards and these recognizing big county projects and so forth. It's a, it's a good feedback for us as staff to the association to, to sort of gather that big picture of the important stuff that our counties are doing and that our association helps them with. So I always feel energized by it, even when it's cold weather and we're gearing up for session. I'm into it. We also have Dom Butchko. Dom is back on the podcast uh, after a lot of listeners reached out and said, you got to bring him back. Dom, you're recovered, I hope, from the Winter Conference as well. How are you today? Oh, I'm doing awesome and very happy to be here. Happy to be back. Happy to have you back. So today on the podcast, as I said, we'll recap Mako's Winter Conference. We'll also recap special session here in Annapolis. And then we're going to get into the troubling rise in cyber attacks against state and local governments, including why they're being targeted and what we can do to bolster our cyber defenses. Michael and Don, let's first get into a recap of special session. And as I mentioned, this was going on last week. We were all in Cambridge at the Winter Conference. But I have to say, Michael, we, we talked a lot about this leading up to it for months and months, and it went pretty much as expected, at least on our end. They stuck to the script as we laid it out. I, th- I, think, that's, I think that's fair. And I mean, that's what we're supposed to do, right? If, if, if we're going to do a podcast talking about politics and policy in the state of Maryland, then we ought to be able to, to basically hit the bullseye on this. So General Assembly, usually if they convene a special session, it's pretty focused. One topic. In this case, they had to do a few extra things, but we've been telling our listeners for weeks that don't expect this to be touch all the bases and revisit all the bills. It's just going to be drawing congressional districts, taking up veto overrides, and as it turns out, the election of a new state treasurer. But that was the list coming in, and that was the list as we came out. And basically, this was batting practice, right? No curveballs, just right down the middle. Yep, and that that's exactly what happened. And State Treasurer, as you mentioned, Derek Davis, longtime legislator from Prince George's County, chair of the Economic Matters Committee in the House, will be the new treasurer. That is an election by the House and the Senate of Maryland. That was a big development. We expected it. We expected the overrides and we expected the congressional redistricting. Dom, any takeaways on your end for from special session? Anything that took you by surprise? Uh, I just think one of the best highlights from special session, anyone who follows redistricting in any state knows that we can come up with some pretty interesting shapes and sizes. And Maryland's third district, I saw a meme earlier, looks like the dinosaur from Toy Story. So that that tickled me. 
if you can't laugh a little bit at the policy process as it happens, then you're missing opportunities in this line of work. So, you know, no judgments here, but that, that is pretty funny. And, and the, the resemblance is noteworthy, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. And, and that is making the rounds on, on all the social media platforms. And so special session, just as we thought, nothing major in terms of surprises. While that was happening, we already mentioned we were down in Cambridge for Mako's annual winter conference. And it was really, really, really good, Michael and Dom. And, and, you know, Michael, I'll say a lot of thought goes into the themes of these conferences and they have to be decided well in advance. And I, I really think that we kind of hit the nail on the head here in terms of what was going to be relevant today, right? And that decision, as we made it months ago, again, I think I think we were right on the money. It just felt like a pretty easy read of the room. You're working with our conference planning committee. Those are elected officials and professionals who have been engaged in multiple MAKO conferences. They sort of guide these themes and focus areas. And we felt like there's so much discussion about uh, people working remotely and um, you know, even the public workforce, but everybody. Um, virtual learning feels like a really big deal. And, and, and so much of that happening really driven by the pandemic. But now that's, that's a conversation for the, the new look workplace. So with all that, that just heightens your concern and focus on data security and, and uh, you know, things like ransomware attacks and, and all those sorts of things. All this stuff is connected. So we're, we're just following a logical path and saying, well, we've been through this pandemic and it's changed the way you deliver public services. It's also changing the way we work and learn and interact and the way we manage data and so forth. And boy, there's a there, there's a, uh, a tale to this comet and we feel like we're in the middle of it. And boy, did we read that correctly. If you've been reading the headlines lately, yeah, it's, it's on a lot of people's mind and definitely was at the conference. Yeah, cybersecurity is a big headline grabber right now for many reasons in many states. And we'll get into all of that. I, I think that the theme was on the money. I think that, uh, you know, a lot of interesting conversations around some of the current events going on, as well as, of course, best practices for how we can approach this technology and how we can make sure that we can protect sensitive data and whatnot, because that is, at the end of the day, essential to what county governments do. One of my favorite, favorite features was we were able to do live 911 calls in Dorchester County, in Cambridge. So we had Frederick County there, Hartford County, you had counties from the shore. They were all assembled in Cambridge and taking live 911 calls from back in their jurisdictions. And that's just a really good example of next generation 911 technology. I know that our, our 911 folks and our emergency communications professionals were really excited to show off that technology to, to all the local elected officials at MAKO and to show them, you know, the, the, the amount of shoulder that we've put into this over the past few years has been significant. So I think seeing that in action and actually, you know, watching that technology work and what it can mean is really a big deal. And I thought that went really well. And again, this, the technology was awesome. And I think it's it was a really good opportunity for our professionals to, to, to show our county elect is exactly what Next Gen 911 means. It was definitely awesome to see in person. Like you, the, the, I say this in jest and also um, very seriously, like what a wonderful time to be alive. Like just the stuff that we could see. It, I love that. One of the, one of the definitely good highlights. So, I mean, Dom, you were front and center for a number of different sessions. W what were some of your big takeaways? This was your first winter conference here at MAKO. 
And I find the winter conference to be a lot more intimate. And I feel like you can have a lot more of those deeper conversations with folks, pull them aside. Is that the way that you saw it? Because I know you were also a part of our summer conference. So I'm interested to hear your, your, your thoughts there. Yeah. So for those listeners who don't know, uh, my first day was actually at summer conference. So this is what quite a journey we've been on these past three or four months. Um, I, I have to say winter conference is probably my favorite. It's more intimate. You can network a little more. Um, and it's just more fun. Winter, summer conference is, is very intense and it's sweaty and it's in Ocean City. Um, I do have to give two shout outs, though. Um, my first one would be to the agro-tourism panel. They were just room was standing room only towards the end of the presentation. Um, they did a fantastic job coordinating. And really, agriculture in Maryland and nationally is changing. Um, really uh, alcohol and uh, party venues and just a lot of interesting stuff there. So they highlighted the future of the industry and really how government can be a partner in that. And then um, the second shout out I have to give to our Parks and Rec affiliate. I love them. They're probably the closest affiliate to my heart. Um, the stuff that Parks is doing in 2021 is just mind blowing. Uh, normally you think of a park and it's a swing set, it's a bench and it's a green field. Um, but oh no, no, my friends. Parks have evolved so much. There's so much technology just with COVID and lines and being able to make sure you can show up to a park and have a space. Um, the future is really bright and we have some pretty awesome people in Maryland working on this. That's good stuff. I, I think um, the content at the conference, I mean, we work really hard along with our professional affiliates to make sure that you know, the breakout sessions and the big general sessions and all the things up and down the hallway are relevant and timely and they're kind of tailored for a general audience, right? We don't, we want to keep the content from being too technical to be, you know, we don't want it to be of no value to the county commissioner or the county attorney who wanders into the room, even though they're not a subject matter expert. Um, I will say though, I'm, this is, this is old hat for me, but I'm amazed at how much you can get done at an in-person event like this. So, you know, we went through the, the the predictable pains of making sure this event was a little more spaced out and a little more comfortable um, than under ordinary circumstances. We had, you know, a couple of events in an outdoor pavilion. We used bigger rooms and wider seating and, and things along those lines. We're following the same sort of framework we did at our summer conference and we wanted to make sure our attendees felt safe and comfortable, but being able to do it in just delivers so much value. I, I'll say one of the issues of the moment that we've talked about on the podcast in the past is we're, we're approaching ahead on this settlement over opioid restitution. And there's a big decision facing county governments in the next few weeks as to whether to opt into this big settlement. And we're trying to finalize that and you've, everybody's been through this. If you have 15 or 20 stakeholders in a process, you can send an email or you can set up a Zoom room or whatever to try and get who you can get, but it's just never perfect. Um, being in that hotel for the space of a couple of days, I probably had, not joking, maybe 40 separate conversations about opioids with county attorneys, with county elected officials, with budget staff, all sorts of people who are stakeholders in that. And I, I, I don't know how many weeks of time it would have taken to have all those conversations. Many of them are 30 second chats, but you grab someone in the hallway. Hey, you four, I want to talk to all four of you about this. I got so much done on an issue like that in person 
that it's just it's mind boggling to think what it would have taken to connect all those all those dots uh, independently. So I love an in-person conference. Our members do, too. I'm glad we could deliver a good and safe one. It felt very safe. It felt spaced out. And I also have to give a shout out to, you know, our state partners, uh, you know, cybersecurity and these tech issues are really a partnership with local, state and federal government. So we had people from Do It there from the state. We had the state CISO there. We had federal partners there. So shout out to all of them as well. This is a partnership and you need to have all the right people in the room for these conversations. And I think we delivered there and and that's going to behoove all of us moving forward. It sounds crazy, but we already have a date for the Mako Summer Conference as well as a theme. And gentlemen, I don't want to even think about Summer Conference yet, but it's scheduled now for August 17th through the 20th, 2022, of course, at the Roland Powell Convention Center in Ocean City. And Michael, do you want to reveal the theme of the 2022 Mako Summer Conference? It's like you're handing me the karaoke microphone there, and that's a dangerous thing to do. um, (laughs) Now, we're we're, going to go with with, it's uh, taking care of business. So um, I think the idea here is as we think through the cycle of next steps coming out of this public health calamity, but also the economic effects of it and so forth, we still have work to do to help move our business community and the private sector let's try and get past surviving and move back to thriving. So we have this papered over national economy. We don't know exactly where everything stands, but there's still a role for public sector leadership in the private sector recovery and, and hopefully, you know, expanse beyond there. So that's going to be our focus. It's an opportunity to talk about retooling our workforce with career and technology education, education. That's been a big focus of the Kerwin Blueprint legislation. It's something the state is very invested in and the counties and our schools and our community colleges are as well. But I think some economic forecasting, some focus on economic development, uh, I think it'll be well received and timely in the, you know, in the months ahead. So once again, I think we're reading the room well, and this will be, I think it'll be a terrific event. I, I wish I'd come with a number of days, you know, with the countdown days for an advent calendar until August 17th, but it'll be here sooner than you realize. Yes. And so it'll be here soon. We got to get the recession. There's a lot of work to be done between now and then, but um, to, to wrap all this up with conference, there is a ton of coverage on the Conduit Street blog. We'll post links in the show notes, but you can read recaps of every session that we had at the Mako Winter Conference and then a preview of the, the Summer Conference as well. So gentlemen, let's move on to cybersecurity. Again, we've kind of teased this entire episode and with the theme of our Winter Conference that this is a big deal in the news right now. We know that malicious actors continue to and increasingly are targeting states and local governments with really sophisticated cyber attacks and malware attacks. And we know that, again, securing government information is critical. This kind of stuff is very disruptive. We've seen that play out in the real world. Again, with the sensitive information, it jeopardizes our critical infrastructure, public safety, and the essential services that that we deliver every single day. So right now, the state is dealing with a cyber event. It's the Maryland Health Department. They've been dealing with this since December 4th. It's now December 16th. And we still cannot get uh, the daily statewide average for COVID-19 infections, the daily numbers that we've all come to rely on. And that directly affects local health departments, right, Michael and Dom? I mean, they rely on these numbers 
not only to understand where the virus is spreading and where they need to, to put additional resources and efforts, but also for contact tracing. So this is a big deal. And I know the state is trying to work it out. But, you know, again, as this is nationally in the news for a lot of different reasons, this attack on the Maryland Health Department in the middle of a pandemic is a big deal. It, it, it's, it certainly is. And I think I think our, our health officers are stakeholders in this right now. Um, you know, you mentioned contact tracing, but information right now is at an absolute premium as we try and track and combat the continued spread of this virus. We know there's potentially a, a new variant that's that's on the rise. Um, it's a terrible time to be lacking in data and and be able to to, to share that. So um, it's it's a vulnerability that's that's part of the information age that 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 sharing and and data you know data like that is out there for a public purpose, but that makes it attractive for malicious purposes. So I, I, I get all that, but I'll I'll say you know jealously got two daughters in public schools here in Anne Arundel County, and we're really eager to know what the data looks like for our individual schools and, and across the county as we make decisions about what's best for them and what's best for our family. I, I'll pull the selfish card for a moment. This is a tough spot to be in. I, I think everyone can agree there is not a worse time for an attack like this to happen. I mean, we are still in the middle of a pandemic. There is a new variant. Numbers are rising. And, and just to put a little context to this, um, December 4th was the date of the attack. As of today, we have partial access to data. We still don't have full access to data. So we are almost two weeks without our health department being fully on its toes. I mean, th- this is just bad. And it's the holiday season. People are traveling. Yeah, so right now we can we can see hospitalizations and some other data. But again, those daily numbers are still not there. And and I also learned today, gentlemen, that the state right now cannot process death certificates. And that that is obviously a problem if somebody passes away, you know, whatever their their wishes are for, you know, being buried or cremated or whatever they want to do. You can't do that until you have to have a death certificate. So that's also affecting the, the state health department's ability to do that. And so, so it's not just, you know, the, the COVID numbers. There are other functions that we, we forget about as we're in the middle of the pandemic. But the, the health department has a lot of different functions. And I think that the number of things that are affected here and, and death certificates being a big one to me, um, that, that also creates problems in other areas. So hopefully we can, we can get this resolved in, in a timely manner because, it, like we've said, it, it's been a while now. And that, that's just heartbreaking. I think our hearts mm-hmm. go out to all the families impacted by that. Mm-hmm. I mean, sure. it's a bad time of year anyway. And it's not like Maryland is alone in this circumstance. Like, you know, the issue of the moment and the thing on our minds is this attack on our own state's health department. But this is just the latest chapter in what's become a really big, wide, troubling trend that governments are just so comfortably in the crosshairs of people who want to do ill. This has become a big business and it's just, I don't know, this is just part of the contours of, of doing public work right now. I mean, you know, down in Virginia, it's their legislature, right? Yeah. So apparently the, you know, the Virginia legislature, the the legislative arm has been hit with a, with a malware attack and they like us start, their session in January. And as we know right now, we've talked about in Maryland, legislators are pre-filing bills. They're getting bills drafted for session, all sorts of work going on in legislative services, coming up with fiscal notes and doing analysis. Well, in Virginia, this attack has made that 
whole function uh, undoable. So they can't write bills right now and bill drafting. They're not able to do analysis. So imagine you have all these legislators trying to get bills in and they can't be drafted because they are under a, an active cyber attack. And that, you know, again, I think it illustrates, as you said, you know, governments are, are not, you know, we're not immune to this. And it's not just something that's going on in the, in the private sector. I think hackers are increasingly targeting, again, the state and local governments because we have sensitive information and, and, and they know that these are lucrative targets potentially. So that, that in Virginia is another good example of that. But I think the good news is we have a, a lot of smart people working on this. And here in Maryland, we have a new study that's coming from the Maryland Cybersecurity Council they are making new recommendations for how the governor and general assembly should address cyber issues in the 2022 session. And I think for us, we should focus on some of the recommendations for local governments, but this report, which is coming out, I believe this week, covers a wide range uh, from state agencies to the private sector, but we are the county podcast. And so I think we should talk a little bit about what this new Cybersecurity Council study is recommending. And, and just to, to say, this was a, a professional group of people from all different sectors. Um, we, MAKO was participating on behalf of county governments, so of course, big stakeholders, but you had people from the University of Maryland, you had people uh, from state government, local government, school boards, everybody was weighing in, federal partners. And so the, the recommendations are the result of a lot of hard work and good stakeholder input. And that's the kind of the way that this stuff is supposed to come together with the right people at the table. It took some time. They did it the right way. But 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 Dom and Michael, let's get into some of these recommendations for what the state can do to help county governments. I would just say, like, that's what we need to do here. Like, it, it's tempting to just say, oh, woe is me. It's so hard trying to do work when these terrible people want to hack your website and take your data. Right. OK, so so fine. That's part of the landscape. What are you going to do about it? And that's where we are. It's okay. So what's the plan going forward? And I, I think I think you're right that as we as we think about what are the tenets for Maryland's plan moving ahead, um, our local government, our local governments are on the job, but it's really tough to have all the all the ingredients for the solution just manufacture at every single level. Every single county and every single town goes through the same process, their own independent process to come up with A, B, and C as their best practices and so forth. I think a collaboration makes more sense. And the state may have some opportunity to leverage best practices at the local level by by coming up with not a carrot, but like a truckload of carrots here. I think, mm -hmm. I think that can be a productive path forward. Right. So one of the, one of the things is that the state should do more to protect local government and helping with assessments and response plans, training, creating model policies. I like the idea of establishing a local cybersecurity support fund. That's also one of the recommendations. And the idea there is just to leverage a lot of this federal money and to provide direct assistance to local governments to, to bolster their cyber defenses. And then I really like the idea, again, of expanding the scope of the Security Operations Center, the SOC. The state has that, including local governments there, coordinating with them, working on procurement issues together, making sure that we're all on the same page in terms of the technology that we're going to move forward with. And the, the state should also 
uh, be providing uh, ways for counties to maybe piggyback onto contracts, right? The state has contracts, counties can piggyback on. Offering those opportunities, offering that assistance, I think is going to be essential moving forward. It's really good to see the study uh, acknowledge that. And I think this is going to be, you know, one of the baselines for what the state starts to look at as we start the, the next session. I'll also mention real quick, the, the Spending Affordability Committee, they make recommendations to the governor and the General Assembly on, on how to craft uh, the, the next budget. So the 23 budget, they specifically uh, mention in a report that they released this week that we need to invest in cyber. So that that's, that's also on their minds. So this is not uh, something that's just in one report. This is something that everybody's thinking about right now. So Dom, I know you've been covering this as well. You, you have a lot of of good information here too, when it comes to what is going on generally with cyber. We have these recommendations, but there are other stakeholders here, right? And let's let's kind of walk through what's happened in Maryland and, and what we can do moving forward. Yeah, so let, let's provide some numbers and data for our listeners. So um, first in 2020, the FBI said that cybercrime nationally cost the country um, 4.2 billion dollars. Now, if you look at the figures from the FBI from 2016, to 2020, the number of attacks and the cost of those attacks are going up exponentially. Um, in that five-year period total nationally, we spent $13.3 billion dealing with um, cyber attacks, cybersecurity, different threats. And you know, to those of you listening to the podcast, uh, Marylanders out there, you know that this is nothing new happening to the state. A few years ago, Baltimore City was hit in a very famous attack, Baltimore County Public Schools, MedStar, um, and just, you know, on December 4th, again, the Department of Health, who we need in a COVID pandemic, um, was hit with an attack. One of the things I want to highlight and underline, though, is there are plenty of organizations out there, and some of them that are governments um, nationally, that aren't reporting these attacks. And those are the things that really scare me, because if they're paying ransom, they're funding these attackers, and they're encouraging them to go out there and do that. So one of the things that I think we should highlight is, if you are attacked, report it and never pay the ransom. And that's coming from the FBI. Um, now, Senator Katie Fry Hester recently put out an article in the Washington Post that I just want to give a shout out to because there are some interesting figures there. Um, first, the starting bid, and this is just the starting bid in order to safeguard personally identifiable information in the state is $150 million. Now, take that in context of uh, the state right now has a $2 billion surplus, and we have $7 billion coming in in federal money, roughly. So $150 million to secure our data, that, that seems pretty cheap to me. Yeah. I mean, un under ordinary circumstances, that would be kind of the threshold question is, yeah, sure, we agree this is important, and we agree this ought to be a priority. But, I mean, how do you capitalize a program like this? How do you come up with the initial funds we happen to be, in, in addition to what seems to be a blooming market for cyber criminals, we also happen to be in an environment where there's a wave of federal dollars and a peculiar economy that's driving some like probably short-term public fund surplus. So it, it, it's just we happen to be in a in a in an opportune moment fiscally that we're at a, we're at a you know we're at, we're at a, a peak right now so there may be an opportunity to carve out some of this lanyap and just say all right we can we can cover cover, cover sliver of that and use it for this major priority and and you know like build up a firewall it's it's not a bad idea 
Yeah, and I, you know, I think this is the governor has indicated that he's very interested in this. He's held summit here in Annapolis with with a lot of different partners. General Assembly leaders like Katie Fry Hesterdam, you're, you're mentioning some from her op-ed. She was also a, a key player in this study group, and she kind of led the efforts. She's taken this under her wing, and, and she's really run with it. So I think everybody agrees. Like, hey, we we need to we need to do something here. We have the means. It's the right time. It's really at this point. How do you craft these policies? What do they look like? Who are the stakeholders? And and what is the state going to be asking counties to do, local governments to do? How can we work in partnership? All of that will come together. But I think it's a you know if we make if we make predictions on this podcast, which we do, I think I'm very comfortable predicting that there will be a big effort and and a substantial sum of funds dedicated to state and local cybersecurity during the next session. I think it's going to be one of the major themes. There will be several, but I think this is definitely one of the major ones. You agree, Dom? Oh, I I totally agree. And I just want to highlight one more point. Um, Back in 2018, Attorney General Frosch, who was also the chair of the Maryland Cybersecurity um, Council, recommended that we need to put in $28 million to start um, with cybersecurity and then $15 million going forward. And what's shocking to me is three years ago, it was $28 million. Today, we're recommending $150 million. We have the money today. We need to invest today. And every day that we're not investing, it's just going to get more expensive. There was an ad for car, you know, car service back uh, when I was a tot. And uh, it, the, the phrase was pay me now or pay me later. It was the idea, come in for your maintenance on your car. Otherwise, the whole thing's going to fall apart. So come in for your $40 tune up now so you won't have to pay for a $2,000 transmission repair. Same kind of deal, honestly, like 10 to this now. So we don't face an even bigger bill later and get caught, you know, in an even worse circumstance than we are today. It's it's smart thinking right now. Yeah, no doubt about it. And the the Joint Committee on Cybersecurity, Information Technology, and Biotechnology uh, in in the Maryland General Assembly has really taken this on. Uh, Katie Fry Hester, again, Senator Hester chairs from the Senate side, and Delegate Pat Young on the House side. I know they're going to continue to work on this and and present some recommendations to the General Assembly. Most of them probably we're going to see in this report coming from the Cybersecurity Council study that we'll see this week. Um, you know, look, I think that this is. The state and counties have to bolster our, our our systems, our networks, no doubt about it. But there, you know, the amount of devices that have had to go out the door, if you will, people that are working virtually, schools are doing virtual. I mean, it's opened up this opportunity for these criminals to really exploit. And then beyond that, the the eruption of like cryptocurrencies, right? They've also enabled this to happen because you can send these anonymous payments and no one can track them down. There are a lot of things that need to be addressed. But for the state and counties to step up and local governments to do their part and make sure we're doing everything we can, that's the right thing to be doing. We need to put a big sum of money into this. It's an investment that will pay off in the long term, I agree. County governments require additional funding and resources. These big big cyber players, they're threatening and, and we need help to bolster our defenses. It's showing up in a lot of ways that are not obvious, like... We understand this idea of you get hit, you lose your data, you get you know, demands for from the from the criminals when they want to ransom and all that kind of stuff. But I mean, there's another piece of this, which is, uh, I, I forgive me, but I, I sit on the board for the local government insurance trust that that tries to serve and represent local governments with insurance products, right? So we. Now, some big counties can self-insure and say, hey, if we wreck a car, we'll just write a check. But if you're small, you probably get an insurance policy. 
right? And you say, we'll pay a premium so that some company, you know, either legit or somebody legit works with will will give us a policy to, to settle these sort of things. Well, wrecking a car is the kind of thing that you can sort of predict. How many cars are in your fleet? How many people drive them? How many miles? You can sort of guess what's going to happen and how much liability there is. If you're trying to write an insurance policy for cyber coverage today, and you're looking at the arithmetic of three or four years ago, we thought this was a $20 million problem. Now it's a $150 million problem. What insurance company wants to deal with this? You don't want to cover it. Um, We have local governments that are almost run dry, just trying to find some way to get this stuff insured. Like We can't afford to take a $10 million hit to rebuild every single tax record and every single document that we have that's on a network if the whole thing goes down and gets captured. Um, if you're in that circumstance, like this is, this is a tough spot. So, so insurance isn't exciting to talk about, except it's, it's a cost of doing business. And right now it's your, your budget officer probably has like five question marks instead of a dollar amount filled in for the spreadsheet she's working on for next year's budget. Like I have no idea. Yeah. And also important to note, I mean, cyber insurance doesn't cover like a ransom amount. It covers the cost of rebuilding all your systems and figuring out where to go. So it's not encouraging people to pay ransom, but it does it does make sure that you're funded when you rebuild and you have to try and retrieve data however you can. So that's a huge issue, Michael. I agree. I think that should be a part of the plan moving forward. I think the state needs to take a hard look at that and how maybe we can leverage some state resources to, to have resources available for local governments when it comes to cyber insurance, because this used to be something that legit just threw in kind of for free. And, you know, again, the evolution of technology and these cyber actors, these malicious folks who are out there has really driven it to a point where now it's like you can't even find somebody to underwrite this stuff. It's, it's so exponentially expensive. That's going to get to be a bigger problem. So I think it's another one where investing now is going to pay off in the long term. Just to touch on that really quick, I think a good example for our listeners, too, is um, in Missouri, one provider, you know, traditionally provided one million dollars in insurance. They slashed that down to two hundred and fifty thousand. The premium for a million dollars used to be five thousand dollars. Now the premium for two hundred and fifty thousand dollars is twenty five thousand. So major moves in the insurance market. Yes. So another another issue that needs to be addressed and hopefully will be addressed as part of you know the the large effort that's going to to happen here in Maryland when I think it comes to to cybersecurity. So I, I just want to mention too, I dropped a mention of the Spending Affordability Committee earlier on in the show. Next week, Michael, if it's okay with you, I think we should try to do a fiscal preview for the session ahead. We've written a lot on the Conduit Street blog. There's been a lot of budget stuff, and we've talked about surpluses and federal funds coming down. So if it's okay with you, we'll book next week for sort of putting all the pieces together and, and seeing how the session is going to take shape when it comes to the governor and the General Assembly and how they craft the budget. Oh, man. So, Kevin, you and me nerding out for 45 minutes, getting into the fine details, the spending affordability committee report and fiscal forecasts and, and, and number policy that you're, you're, you're going to twist my arm and make me do that. Oh, oh yeah. Sign me up. I'm in. All right. All right. And Dom, you'll probably want to take off next week. I don't think uh, <laughs> I don't think you'll. Yeah, I, I was just thinking of something to help me fall asleep now. There you go. OK, well, we'll take it however we can get it. But we'll leave it there for this week, gentlemen. Dom, thank you so much for joining. You're, you're the lead here at Mako for cybersecurity issues. So anybody out there 
who has any follow-ups, we'll make sure that you can get in touch with Dom. But as always, Dom, we appreciate your insight and thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. All right. So I'll leave it there. For Dom and Michael, Kevin is signing off. If you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe. That way, all of these episodes will be sent directly to the device of your choice. You can also follow along on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and of course, the Conduit Street blog. We will talk to you next week.